earth. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. And as you're seated, turn your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 16 today. 1 Corinthians 16, and we'll be focusing this morning on verses 1 through 9. If you don't have a Bible, please um, grab one inside of the foyer, and we do have ones that are available for free there. We believe and want everyone to have their own Bible they can use, or maybe you'll open on your phone app, or whatever it is it's used to read that. Uh, but we'll be in 1 Corinthians 16, 1 through 9. And now we're hitting the last chapter of... Uh, the book of 1 Corinthians. And by my count, that means it's sermon number 29. I don't know if you're curious about those things. And there's been a lot of glorious things we've gone through as we work through a book like this. The last chapter, talking about the resurrection and talking about our hope of the resurrection. And we might want to leave the letter there with the amazing testimony that it is and those glorious uh, reflections that are there. But here we have in chapter 16, this reminder that this is a letter which is written to a church and is dealing with practical and specific things. Again, 1 Corinthians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in the city of Corinth, and you can see how personal it is in the practical matters that they deal with. Matters about giving, matters about travel, matters about personal relationships, and it really is a smorgasbord of closing comments, but comments that you know, give us some practical steps of understanding of the, of, of the Christian faith and a way of understanding the world. You've probably heard that some things are better caught than taught. And in a lot of these things, we catch on to the priorities that the gospel brings into our life and the way it helps us to think and the way it changes a bit the way we think. And in today, as we think about our own planning. So we're going to work two sermons through chapter 16 and some practical realities of the Christian life. So this is uh, chapter 16, and we'll read verses 1 through 9. 1 Corinthians 16, 1 through 9. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches in Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there be and there are many adversaries. This is God's word. May I add his blessing to the reading of it. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for your inspired word. You're an errant, inspired, perfect word, which teaches us and leads us and helps us to think uh, through how we live these lives to glorify you. And we pray, Father, as we work through this, help us to think through our own lives and our own plans and our own planning, Father, to give you all the praise and the honor and the glory that you are due. So we ask you, God, for these things. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> well, I don't know if you are anything like you, like, like me, but when you get a new idea, or you hear something that God commands you to do, or uh, there's something you know you, sh you should do, is that you begin to, to formulate goals inside of your, in, 
inside of your mind. You know what you need to do, and so uh, starting tomorrow, right? Tuesday, not starting today. Starting tomorrow, you're going to do the right thing. And if you're like me, what often happens is that you uh, fail to make progress. Maybe you, you never start. Maybe you quit early. And as you fail, you, it's, you become discouraged. It's easy to become discouraged. For many of us, it happened when we tried to go on that diet. You know, I know that I've tried health regimens and found success for a period of time while I was intentional. But after that, you know, you lose focus and we can have frustration. Uh, people have also told me about their frustrations with Bible reading or personal prayer. Maybe you've thought yourself, now is the time I'm going to start reading through the Bible and be more faithful. But after a while, it, you, know, you might get distracted, and it w- ends up in one of those dustbins of, of failed goals. We could throw in family devotions, getting on a budget, exercising, praying more. We can go on and on with goals that we uh, fail to accomplish. One of the big reasons we fail to accomplish our goals is the lack of planning uh, in attempting to accomplish them. We have dreams, we have visions, we have wishes, but we don't always put the necessary steps into place to move uh, towards success in our plan. And when obstacles come in, our plan is not sufficient in order to deal with it, and, and that um, difficulty and, and the hurdles there are too much for us to get through. Sometimes it's our own lack of commitment and our own lack of accountability in it. It's been said that a lack of, that the, it's been said that a failure to plan is planning to fail. And that's true even as we trust in God's sovereignty. There are some who would say, you know, planning fails to trust God. You know, if we really trust God, you know, we're not going to plan. Well, they say we shouldn't make plans. Uh, but if you read this section, you could see clearly that this is about making plans. This is making plans about one of the, by the, one of the apostles himself. With the recognition that God is under control, he still wants us to make those plans. And so we make our plans by faith. And we'll we want to do is learn to make our plans by faith and leaving the results to God. So we're going to look at a couple things today. The first thing is, verses 1 through 4, is planning and our small steps. Planning and our small steps. Now, 1 Corinthians 16 is, is, provides some instruction upon giving. Apparently, the Corinthian church that they wanted to give to a special fund to care for the needs of the poor uh, within the church, especially in Jerusalem. You can see that in verse 1. He says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches in Galatia, so you also are to do. Now we know that there was a famine inside of the land of Palestine at the time. The Corinthians wanted to know how to, to contribute to that, how to care for their brothers and sisters in Christ, and they asked how they could give. And so the Apostle Paul, these verses 1 through 4, give a, a simple plan for giving. There's really nothing amazing or earth-shattering here, but it does give us a chance to think through our own basic habits, the decisions that we make. Now, the starting point for this, of course, is motivation. The, the Corinthians, they wanted to give to the suffering Christians around the world. And they wanted to contribute to that important cause. They were demonstrating the heart of God in this. If you look at 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 5, the Apostle Paul speaks about other motivated churches. Ones that were that out of the abundance of their joy, even when they were poor. They overflowed with generosity to the point they begged earnestly in order to give and to take part in the relief of the saints. The motivation of giving is the heart that rejoices to meet the needs of others. It's the response of love for other people that we see that are in need. So it's also, giving is also a response to the heart of God. 
We could look at 2 Corinthians 9, 6, and 7, which says the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver, and giving is something that pleases God. And so we may have motivations like that. Motivations that we see that there are 41 million people in this planet who are an imminent threat of famine. We may know of a beloved missionary who is in need. We may know of a church that's starting in a place where nobody, where, where there's no churches that are established and people don't regularly have a chance to hear the gospel. We may hear of God's heart for giving. We may want to be obedient to God and loving to our neighbor. But without a plan and action to do something about it, uh, that motivation can be easily lost. And so the Apostle Paul gives simple guidance here, but it gives a regular pattern. Verse 2 says, on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there'll be no collecting when I come. So he's saying, save a little bit each week. And as that sum accumulates, when um, the time is right, we'll send over the, the, the huge pot of money or whatever uh, to those who are suffering in Jerusalem. It's an important uh, reminder for us all here is that we shouldn't wait till the last second uh, to do something if we want to be successful, if we want to do it. Whether it's a project that we're working on, whether it's our school work, whether it's the intent to give 10% of our money, uh, procrastination is a great threat to our success in those things. You know, if you wait till the last second, it is less likely that you're going to do it. You know, we know the benefit of doing things in small steps, small chunks. It's easier to swallow bit by bit. Let's say you want to give $5,000 to the Lord over a year. It's a lot easier to give $100 a week in order to do that than to write a $5,000 check. It's the same amount of money, but just the smaller chunks make it easier to do, and they make some of that habit easier to do and the obedience to God. Helps us to think that what if the ability to do God's will is more described by steps of faithfulness rather than it is one gigantic step of, of valor or sacrifice. But that's often the way that it works. S- small steps performed over time that, la- that produce lasting fruit. We shouldn't think that just by taking that first step we'll find immediate success. No, success takes time to develop. And as God blesses the steps of faithfulness, as we work over weeks and months and years, we know that God accumulates and blesses. So just imagine as the Corinthians would save up week to week how much they would be able to, to give when that offering was finally released over to the saints in Jerusalem. It was more than what would have uh, taken place if they just had a last-second fund drive, if they just waited till the end. That's why we do our faith promises the way that we do it. And we plan ahead in March, ask you to commit to that faith promise. And that, what we get there, is going to be dedicated, committed to missions giving for the rest of the year. So instead of asking missionaries to come in and take, take up an offering with whatever, whoever's present is able to give, um, you know, we enable them to stay over long term. We don't want missionaries to have to come back when, they don't, when they're not ready to come back. You know, we want them to be able to support them so they can make plans for the long term and anticipate you know, a long term ministry on the field. You know, that's one of the reasons why we do that, bottling ourselves really after 1 Corinthians 16. This is something that we all need. You know, many of us are not systematic in the way that we give, and it shouldn't be. 
You know, is there a problem with motivation in us? Is it a problem in our planning? If the motivation is a problem, then we have to remember that God commands generosity. He commands giving. If we lack motivation, uh, we need to remember the incredible sacrifice that, that God himself has made on our behalf. You know, why are we generous? Because God is first generous with us. He exemplified it to us in sending his own son into the world and giving us life through that 100% sacrifice of Jesus on that cross. But if we are motivated and habits become our problem, uh, then we can take some of the Apostle Paul's wisdom here. We can look at two critical habits that he describes. And first, we need to see what others have done. If you look back at verse 1, you'll see the Corinthians telling, uh, or he, he tells the Corinthians to do the same thing that the Galatians have already done. Now, the Corinthians aren't the only church that want to give to contribute to this need, but the, the Galatians have already done it. They're already doing it. They're already involved with it. Um, that Galatians, again, were a church in modern-day Turkey, and they've, had, they've had, had some success by this point, and so he suggests they do the same thing as they did. Other people have traveled these paths before, and if others have found success in doing them, we can find uh, success in those paths as well. Maybe it's in giving, or maybe it's in Bible reading, or in family devotions, or, or church attendance. If you see godly people... And if you see the way they do things, you know, those are things that we can learn from and pattern our life on. That's why God raises up elders inside the church. That's why God uh, raises them up to be examples of spiritual growth. And we can ask them how they've grown. You can ask those you respect who are godly. How, how, how have you grown in the faith? So we see, we look at what others have done. And the second thing we see is the requirement to be systematic. We see this in verse 2. Again, he tells them to take up this offering on the first day of the week. That's the, that's the day that the Christian church would gather together for worship together. And part of that was take up an offering for the poor. Just as when we uh, come to celebrate the Lord's Supper, we take up an, an, an offering for our deacon sharing fund. As an aside, it's important to note that at the resurrection of Jesus Christ, what happened to the church? They immediately moved to church on Sundays, right on the first day of the week. Right from the start, you know, we see that break of the Jewish Sabbath and moving on to the Christian Sabbath or the Lord's Day. Some people might wonder, why do we worship on uh, Sundays rather than Saturdays, which is the Jewish Sabbath? And, and the reason is, is the resurrection. Jesus Christ was raised on a Sunday, and, and that's why we continue to gather th this way. We see right from the very beginning the church doing that, even from here in 1 Corinthians 16. So notice also in terms of being systematic that he also says everyone is to participate. Everyone should give. And it's a command. It's instruction. It's direction. In fact, nothing exposes our heart for God more clearly than our practice of giving. Jesus himself said that where our treasure goes, there our, our heart also goes. I remember uh, listening to Larry Burkett as he was talking about children and raising children. And Larry Burkett was a, a well-known Christian uh, financial guru or teacher. He taught parents. He taught me that you could really see the heart of your children for the Lord in the way that they give or they don't give. It's one of those earliest discipleship techniques as we think about our own children or even as we weigh our own hearts. Another part of the system here is to give what you can. Notice in verse 2 that they are to set aside some money, and then he says, quote, as God has prospered them. As God has prospered them. We can take this two ways. First, we need to see just how much God has prospered us 
Everything that we have comes to us as a gift from God, and we ought to recognize just how much God has given and how much God has, has blessed us. And we realize that out of these blessings that God has given to us, we have the opportunity then to go and to be a blessing to the people of God. Every one of us has a responsibility, no matter how much or how little it is that we make. It's not something that we wait to to do until we reach a certain financial threshold. No, right now we need to see how God has already blessed us. Right now is we need to see how he's already prospered us. And right now we give with that in mind. It's important for even high school students or even college students. I mean, the truth is, is, you know, when are you going to start giving? If not responding to the call to God, call of God to give now, you know, do you think it's any easier later? It never becomes easier. It's always in response to the obedience of God and his call upon our lives. We also see when we talk about this idea of as God prospering us, is we see that giving is proportional to the way that God has blessed us. Different people will give different amounts. That's why the idea of a tithe is incredibly helpful. You know, a tithe, of course, means a 10% of one's gross income. And, and we see that as a person tithes, that a person who makes one amount may give more than a person who uh, makes a lesser amount. You know, but it's proportional, the percentage-wise of the income. Now, I understand that the Bible does not uh, directly speak of a tithe, and sometimes people question whether it is a, a New Testament concept. And I believe that, as, as most people do, that the New Testament goes beyond a tithe. The New Testament is clear that we're to give generously and sacrificially. We already looked at 2 Corinthians 9, 6, and 7. It's hard for us to imagine that sacrificial and generous giving would be anything short of a 10% tithe. We know that Jesus gave us everything, and we know that in his generosity, he reminds us not to hold anything back from God. You know, it's out of 10. It's one out of 10. Can we not even give back to God that little amount? You know, part of this, and just seeing where our own congregation is, I asked John Hinson as our treasurer to put together some statistics, you know, just to show some of our own patterns. And um, I don't see what any person gives. I have no insight to that. In fact, I think only uh, one person does, only John. Um, you know, I don't see giving statements. I don't sign any of those things or any of that. You know, that is, you know, the conscience of a person. It's, it's part of the conscience between a person and, and, and God. What John tells me as I look at the treasure um, notes that he sent, he said, we have 300 donors total. Now, that's anybody over 18. Married couples are combined as one. Um, you know, these are giving units, maybe they, they might call it. Um, and overall, there is just enormous generosity. Over the last year, we see over $1.1 million has been given to ministries, operations, mission trips, missionaries, deacon sharing fund. You know, and we've been able to see uh, the church continue to uh, minister to our own community and around the world. And we praise God for that. You know, but still, we recognize that, you know, a good percentage of that is given by a small number of givers, about 25, says 25 units cover about 50% of the budget. And some, um, you know, are able to do that as they respond to God's call in their life. And, and we know that many give generously, even sacrificially. Many tithe, even when it's difficult. We're blessed to have the resources and opportunities to minister around the world, but, you know, other people don't. According to statistics, 129 donors give less than $1,000. 92 covenant members give zero. You know, and so, you know, we know that as we continue to grow in the Lord, that God calls us to an obedience to him and dealing specifically with 
our giving, with our finances, with our resources. I'm told it would surprise me who gives and who doesn't give. Now, I don't want to know, but that doesn't mean that I'm not concerned that people may love more more than Christ. You know, I understand that Christians give, on average, 4% of their income. You know, but what would happen in the ministry of the church and missions around the world if a full tithe was given? It would make a huge difference. The support of missionaries, the planting of churches, the giving of the gospel, the caring of the poor. So 10%, you know, 10% is one of those helpful habits. You know, it's a starting point for us as we give to the Lord's work. And when it sounds like a lot, and it sounds like you're set back when you do it, then God even says in Malachi 3.10, he says, test me and see how I will bless you. So God calls us to give. He calls us to give because he's given to us to share, and he only asks for a percentage to show, you know, in, in response to his love. It's a demonstration of our love. It's a, it's a declaration of our freedom of the love of money. And so when it comes to our habits that are required to fulfill God's purposes, especially in giving, we remember that it's not simply about being deprived of something. We also remember that it's about participating in something bigger than ourselves. It's participating in God's kingdom and investing in something which is going to endure forever and ever. So that wraps up our section of looking at God's will by making plans for consistent faithful obedience and small steps. But we also want to look in this next part is about the big picture. You know, how does God's big picture, you know, how does this, this, this big plans fit with, with, um, with, with God's plans? And so we're going to look at verses 5 through 9 as we look at planning and big vision. So verses 5 through 9, Paul makes it clear that he plans to visit the Corinthian church in the future. But this time, it's not his specifics that he gets into, but he really speaks in generalities. And that's really what stands out. He says, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia. And no dates are given, no time frame or anything like that, but there's an intention that when he can, he's going to, to be there. Now, a little bit of the background, because I'm going to refer to it later. Um, you know, the Apostle Paul had already spent 18 months in the city of Corinth, helping get their church started. Spent there, he spent more time there than he had in most other churches. And it was all during a second missionary journey in about A.D. 52. And uh, after 18 months of spending there, he, he left them. And for about 18 months, he continued to travel. You know, again, building up churches, starting new churches, training elders, and to do all those things uh, throughout the known world. And then he starts on what we call his third missionary journey. And then he lands in the city of Ephesus, and he writes this letter to them. So they're having some challenges, and he, he wants to, to deal with some of these questions and challenges that they're facing, but clearly intended to go back to them. But what happens as soon as this letter is written is that things devolve quickly in Corinth. It got so bad inside the church and the conflicts they had that he had to go back to what he calls his, his surprise and painful visit. You know, surprise and painful visit, like the secret shopper, right, who's going to go in and say all the problems in a, in a store or something like that. And it wasn't a good visit. And it led to a lot of contention. It led to a lot of division. And he had to leave early before things got worse. He wrote a follow-up letter, even, to deal with how bad it was. And it was full of rebuke. And we don't even have that letter to this day. So remember, not everything the Apostle Paul wrote was inspired by God. He didn't, God didn't see to, to see that letter would continue. You know, that's something that's, that's gone. We, we won't see that again. But 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, those are given to us as inspired scripture. But then later, uh, things begin to resolve, and so he writes 2 
Corinthians, and he sends that to them, and he makes another visit, one that was evidently more positive because uh, the book of Acts says that he spent at least three months there on his missionary journey. It's a good reminder for us just to remember that, that uh, even people like Paul who seem to change the world do not always find success in the things they do. Things are not always positive. And so here we have in 1 Corinthians 16, he's promising to come back, but it didn't work out for a long time, and that bothered some of the Corinthians. During his time away, some of them began to speak poorly of him. They said that he was unloving. He was untrustworthy. He said he'd come back, they said, but he hasn't. He hadn't measured up to their own sense of timing. And because of that, they were quick to condemn him. He responded to that in 2 Corinthians 1, 17 and 18. He felt like he had to say something back. When he says, was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no? At the same time, as surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. Our plans do not always turn out the way that we want them to. And just because we make plans doesn't make sure that we're going to succeed in them. But we see the importance of making them anyway because of the possibilities that they open up. And that's what I want us to see as we look at this. I want to look at five godly planning principles from the passage here. There's five things which really stood out to me as I read it. The first thing is, is if you don't try to hit big goals, you may not hit any goals. If you don't try to hit big goals, you may not hit any goals. You know, we have to remember that at this time, travel was incredibly difficult. I mean, I'm from Colorado originally. I met people from Colorado who've never been to Virginia. I met people from Virginia who've never been to Colorado, and it's really not that far. You know, we have paved roads all the way there. We have airlines that can get you there. Um, You know, you may not have had a reason to go there. It's beautiful, though, if you ever get a chance to go. Um, But, you know, I mean, that's our conditions now. It's relatively easy to travel. But back then, it's difficult. You're going to go by foot or by horse. Uh, There's always a threat of bandits, always a threat of thieves. You're traveling through uh, vast stretches of wilderness, uh, which are are untamed. And yet, here you have the Apostle Paul saying, you know, I am willing to make this difficult journey from Jerusalem all the way up through modern-day Turkey, across the Mediterranean Sea, and down from the top of modern-day Turkey all the way down to the bottom in order to visit with you, just to speak with you. I mean, that's a big goal. And as you think about that, you get the sense that, you know, he's not exactly sure what's going to be next. I mean, it's enough just to get there. Um, but what's going to happen is they're going to be able to help him get onto the next spot that he needs to go to. We look at verse 6. He says, perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. And we shouldn't be ashamed to make big goals, even unattainable goals, things that we, we cannot possibly do by ourselves, but things that God can do. Remember, we've had some of those. Back in 2007, we said, we want to plant 20 churches by 2020. Some of you might remember that, right? Well, 2020 has passed, and I don't think we planted 20 churches, but I'll tell you what, you know, we did plant two local churches. We were able to help plant a few churches overseas, and so was that a failure? Well, it depends on your perspective, but I'll say this, that two is better than zero. And considering most churches are just trying to stay alive, you know, that's significant. We're able to start new ones, not, you know, not speaking anything about what's happened overseas. See, here's the thing. When you set a big goal, you begin to think about how you can possibly fulfill that goal and to see how God opens up those doors for the possibilities that are around us. I mean, your goal might to be to get out of debt. It might seem unattainable when you set your hand to it, setting a plan, 
looking for the ways you can do it. You might find ways that it comes sooner than you would have otherwise thought. The same thing comes with evangelism. We're called to share our faith with others and tell others about Jesus. But if we're to pray every day that God would open up evangelistic opportunities, and you might be amazed who, who God opens up. You might be praying for your coworker, just hoping that God opens a door to tell them about Jesus. And before you know it, you know, somebody else, your neighbor, is God's answer to that prayer. And God used that goal to help fulfill a different one or a smaller one. You know, not everything has to be perfectly put together at the beginning. The Apostle Paul's weren't. Many good goals are sacrificed on the altar of perfectionism, sadly. Many times our goals are, are bigger than we can accomplish unless God gives us new eyes to see how we can do them. And so we're not to be ashamed of those big goals, but to be willing to ask the question, how does God want me to accomplish this? The second thing is, we see in verse 7, is to make time for what matters. To make time for what matters. The Apostle Paul knows that relationships take time to develop. In verse 6, he says he wants to spend the whole winter with them. In verse 7, he shows this is not just a passing thing. You know, there is that basic equation when it comes uh, to love and relationships. It's an equation that you need to know when it comes to your children, when you're talking about your spouse, and the equation is this, is that love equals time. I mean, it's simple. I mean, love equals time. The amount of time that we spend with people is a demonstration of our love and our commitment to them. Sometimes people, especially parents, think they can, can skip that time just by doing maybe big acts of love, by buying a big gift, but it doesn't work. You know, love requires time with a person. So the Apostle Paul, in saying that he's going to spend the winter with them, he's saying that he loves them enough to invest in them, to take the time to build them up in Christ and to know them and to do what it takes. In the same way, we must evaluate our goals and ask if they are sufficiently relational. Are we spending time for the good of our children? for the growth of their character, for them to become more loving? Are we using our time to care well for our spouse? Are we investing the relationships inside the body of Christ? Is our time directed by our own selfish ambition? We take time for what matters. Take time for those that are dependent on you. Make sure for all the goals you set, that relationship stays central. Well, the third thing I see in this is that he committed himself by writing things down. He committed himself by writing things down. Now, he tells the Corinthians ahead of time that he's going to go and visit them. And, and, and we live in a time where people don't really uh, like to make commitments. People tell me all the time that they plan a big event or maybe even a wedding, and they find that their guests, the people they invite, won't really commit themselves to go because they're waiting for something better to come up, um, just to make sure something better doesn't come up, or, um, or you know, they just don't want to latch themselves in too early. Um, marriage itself is on a decline and, and, and more people live together. And, and sometimes it's just because of that fear of commitment. They don't want to commit to relationships because uh, sometimes people are afraid that they might change their mind later. But we see how powerful commitment is. It's because powerful, you know, commitment sets our path. Did it with the Apostle Paul here, right? He said, hey, I'm going to come visit you. And they were going to hold him accountable to go visit him. They were bothered when he didn't show up and they wrote him about it. If we commit ourselves to godly things, we direct ourselves towards things that are good. And that commitment itself creates a, a sort of accountability for us. You know, sometimes people won't uh, commit themselves to anything until it's, it's perfect. What if we commit ourselves to something, realizing it's not going to be perfect, but it's good, and we want to walk in it? 
with all the difficulties that it might bring upon ourselves as we do that. You know, isn't that what we do in our wedding vows? You know, we make these vows before witnesses. We know that things are not going to be perfect in them, or at least we should know that. But we commit ourselves to the relationship despite its imperfection. That's what exactly allows love to grow and to, and to bloom. And so think about it. The Apostle Paul here, he kind of creates his own problems, doesn't he? He promises his future visit, and then people uh, begin to question his commitment to actually do that. I mean, I, I don't know if you've ever done something like that. You just hate it. Why did I ever say I was going to do that? And they make us not want to make commitments. But when the commitment is right, it creates the accountability and the opportunity and the vision to do what needs to be done. All right, so he writes things down. Number four, uh, leave your plans to the sovereignty of God. So if you look back at verse 7, you know, he says that he hopes to spend time with him, quote, if the Lord permits, if the Lord permits. So from the beginning, the Apostle Paul uh, knew his plans were in the hands of God. He was dependent on God to accomplish them, and if God blessed those plans, that he knew that he would go where God wanted to, and God would bring fruit out of that. You know, I love this great quote by William Carey, one of the first great missionaries in um, in. In, in history, uh, William Carey wrote, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. And if God is in it, it will be blessed. And if he has other plans, those plans will soon become clear. I mean, the downside to making plans is a lack of providential flexibility. I mean, we like to think that if we make the right plans for the future, everything will work out. We make plans for riches. We make plans for big families. We make plans for, for big homes or obedient children. We make plans for ministry success. And we may envision thousands of people coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And any of those plans may, may, may or may not be good, but we need to remember is that our hands and our lives and our, even our choices are in the hands of a sovereign and a good God. And he can steer us. He can direct us in the way that he wants. But it's always good. Romans 8.28 reminds us that he works all things together for good. We remember the words of James 4.13-16, which says, Come now you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, and we, uh, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. And so we say, you, we make great plans for God, but we, we leave them in God's hands. And we look for a sort of providential flexibility. And we know that if our plans are not for God's glory and his sake, that we want to reconsider those, whether we should be doing them at all. So we trust in God's sovereignty. And finally, number five, we stay where God is working. We stay where God is working. Look at verses eight and nine. He says, I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door of effective work is open for me and there are many adversaries. As much as the Apostle Paul wants to go back uh, to Corinth, uh, for those relationships there, he also recognizes that God is doing an amazing and important work in the city of Ephesus. You can read all about it, both the good things and some of the hard things, in Acts chapter 19, 23 through, through uh, chapter 20, verse 1. But it basically says that 
At the time, there was a huge conversion. Many, many people coming to faith in Christ in the city of Ephesus. People were turning away from false idols. They were burning their books, and they were destroying those idols. Uh, They were raising up elders among their church, and and there was so much change that was going on that there was such an upheaval that they faced much opposition. You know, he had to respond to that in caring for the church. Paul made a number of visits to the city. You know, we we see the church growing with elders, a home base of missions, um, for all around the world, and, you know, God did this effective work there, and so he decided to stay. In the same way, we need to know what to do and when to do it. We need to know that we have different seasons of our lives and different goals and different tasks for every one of those seasons. We need to learn to be content in those seasons and help others to see the need for those seasons. As much as he might want to go back to Corinth, he needs to to stay in Ephesus, as much as you might want to, to build that career or get involved in that ministry, you know that, that sometimes you have to stay invested in your family. There's no shame in those things. And while we're in a time of waiting, we pray and we seek the Lord with it. But there's other times and seasons where we need to go, we need to move on, and we need to get involved uh, with that calling that God has before us. Regardless of what it is, we stay faithful to the calling that, ha- that God has for us. And we might wonder... Why was Ephesus such a center of transformation and growth? Certainly it was part of God's sovereign plan. We also see Paul ready there in order to embrace it and to help it grow. Remember what his vision is. His vision is to make the gospel known throughout the whole world. And he moves from city to city, preaching the gospel and looking for the opportunities that God gives. And what happened in Ephesus? But God blew the doors open with this massive repentance. Many people come into faith in Christ and the growth of the church. He brought those converts together. He brought them in local churches. And this was this place of, of great ministry success after he'd had times of failure. You know, he'd gone to city, you know, city after city, sometimes failing, sometimes gathering some people together, sometimes being stoned and kicked out of the city, sometimes being rejected by the people that are there and dismissed. But Ephesus, that vision becomes a reality. It's really what he was praying for. That's what God had put on his heart. And so when the opportunity came, he knew exactly what he was looking for, and he preached the gospel, and he saw those come to faith in Christ. It's one of the reasons we need to pray, you know, asking God to sovereignly work, but also God opening our eyes so we can see what he's doing as he reveals his plan. I was thinking um, this week about what brought me here. When Julie and I got married 23 years ago today, uh, we had the great vision and the goal to reach college students with the gospel um, in Asia. And that was our plan, and that was, you know, we had a plan for it, we had a strategy, and all those things put together. Uh, We wanted to be missionaries. And, you know, the path was clear to us. We'd already had success, um, and, you know, we believed it was God's plan forward. And we imagined many people coming to faith in Christ. You know, shortly after we got married, we were faced with family tragedy, you know, that family tragedy left us with some grief and, and mourning and some, um, some decisions that we had to make. And we we're unable to go back to Asia. We we're unable to go back to where we wanted to go. For me, I remember those times of frustration. I remember the confusion that was there. But in God's kindness, you know, he reminded me of uh, the need to care for my family in this. But the vision for ministry didn't end. You know, God did other things. He provided other ways for it to happen. For me, it was going to seminary. It was getting involved in a local church and seeing the amazing ministry of a local church and the ability to have the local church be involved in mission trips. And he brought me here. 
over 16 years ago. You know, the vision for reaching people for Christ didn't change. God directed to a different continent. God directed to a different age group. But God opened up the door of ministry so that I could be here, and I could be here now. You know, God opens those doors for us to be involved. Um, and for us, it was to be involved in a missions-minded church that's reaching the world with the gospel. And, so, and in so many ways, even though I could not have expected it when it happened, you know, God fulfilled uh, that goal, that vision that he gave to me. All the great plans for going to Asia were adjusted as God opened my own doors and the plans that he had for me. And so do I feel like I failed to accomplish that initial vision? And no way. I, I believe that God had to season for that vision. God had to test it, that God had to prove it, but in order to bring me into the place that he wanted me to be. And so today, even as a congregation, we still have our big vision. We want to see more churches planted. You know, we're looking out a year or so to see if we can have a, another church start soon. You know, we're looking to see church planting take place throughout our world, and how can we uh, continue to send out uh, more missionaries and, and to raise up more churches overseas. We have a, a vision to, um, you know, there's land that's nearby us that we'd like to be able to purchase. We wonder how can we provide more room in this sanctuary for uh, people to come in and to worship. We have a, a vision to see evangelism take place, that more people can come to faith in Christ. In fact, as we were praying for that, what's amazing is we had this um, um, visit this call with the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. So we're praying, how do we get the gospel to be known? How do we do that? And then we have this conversation, and they say, hey, you know, we'd like to work with your church and other churches in seeing um, Will Graham come and to do an evangelistic outreach inside the city of Fredericksburg. And so, you know, we're looking towards uh, July of 2022. But how does that happen? You know, I mean, at least for us and our involvement with it is we're praying about it, we're seeking God in this. What happens? But God says, well, hey, this is... This is the way that you can see that happen and be fulfilled. We have a vision for discipleship where our children are grounded in the faith and they walk in maturity, partly because parents themselves are growing more mature and that are able to disciple them in the Lord. We have a vision to see a strong, solid counseling ministry take place, strengthening people in their walk with Christ and to overcome the challenges of life and helping marriages to grow stronger. Do we know how God's going to make any of those things happen? I mean, we do not. We pray about them, their hopes and dreams. We talk about them, especially at Focus Day. Uh, but we believe that when the time is right, that God will open our eyes to the opportunities he has for us. I mean, there's a reason for the dreams. There's a reason for the visions. There's a reason for the prayers. And so what about you? Do you have a vision for where you want to go? Do you know the big story of your life? so that you know how you want to act when the opportunity comes? Do you know what you, you know, you know, one thing you can do is you can write that down. Commit yourself to it, continue to review it, and then plan by taking the necessary steps and see how God opens the doors. When it comes to, to planning, I, I think of God's own plan for us. I was reminded of Jeremiah twenty nine eleven, where he said to the people of Israel, he said, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. You know, God committed himself to a plan, and that was the redemption of his people. You know, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, you know, uh, worked together in all of eternity to provide a plan of salvation. The Father sending the Son, the Son dying on a cross to pay the penalty of sin, and the Spirit bringing new life to dead bones and bringing people to faith in Jesus Christ. 
See, God planned to shower grace and mercy on you in choosing you for salvation and planning the way to do it and seeing the result of it as you grow in Christ. And in his power, he has accomplished it. That's his grace and planning. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, you call us to take up our cross and follow Jesus. Father, we fail to take up our cross when we fail to plan rightly. Jesus even talked about that in one of his parables. But Father, we do take up our cross. We take up our cross to follow Christ and, and the plans and the purposes you have for us to, to walk in obedience to your scripture. Father, to wonder how we can fulfill these things in the spread of the gospel around the world. We want a vision for that service, Lord. We want, to, we want your glory to be known. We want to see uh, souls saved. We want to see people come to faith in Christ. You sent your son, God, to, to change us, to change our hearts, to change our daily habits, to move us forward in this grand vision of godliness. And so we pray, Father, that you would help us to walk in these ways. We ask you, God, for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's close and worship.